everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Michael Bobelian. He's the author of The Marble Palace and his account of the 1968 court battle over Abe Fortas's nomination to the Supreme Court where he was LBJ was trying to elevate him from being an associate justice to being a chief justice. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of that history has kind of been lost and forgotten. And I was this week, uh, by complete happenstance, uh, reading Michael's book. And so I thought I'd bring him on the show, even though it's a little bit off topic from our normal podcast. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our uh, conversation. So, you know, I've been following the Supreme Court debate, of course, um, over Barrett's uh, nomination and then confirmation this week. And after reading your book this week, I get the sense that the media and the Democrats uh, got the history wrong here. Uh, Would you agree? Yes, I, I would totally agree. That That's one of the weird misconceptions. And I think you're referring to the, the Bork nomination, right? In the, well, not just uh, the Bork in, nomination, but, but in terms of the history of making last-minute uh, appointments to the Supreme Court, um, it looks like Barrett's confirmation is not the exception, but Garland's was. Yes. Yes, I mean, Barrett's is unusual in that it rarely has happened so late in an election year, but there have been, there've been plenty of election year nominations and confirmations. And the Garland one was the real anomaly, as you said, uh, because the Senate didn't even refuse to even have hearings and have a vote. And look, it is the Senate's prerogative to reject nominations. I don't think the Senate should just be rubber stamping uh, the selections made by presidents. Uh, so it's certainly their institutional prerogative, but I would have felt a lot better had they gone through the process and had a good reason for rejecting Garland rather than what appears to be now more than ever uh, a purely partisan and ideological reason. And that's, I think that's the, the part about Garland that um, you know, is a bit upsetting just from a pure, not liberal or conservative standpoint, but from a democratic uh, government standpoint in terms of uh, what's fair what's reasonable and what's representative of the electorate's will, uh, I think it would have been a lot fairer for Republicans to give him a fair shake. And if they rejected him, they rejected him. That's certainly their prerogative to do that. 
uh, as an institution. Um, but they didn't go through any of that process. And then they totally changed their outlook, which, again, seemed for very partisan and ideological reasons and really ran through the Barrett confirmation very quickly. And, I, you know, this, I'm not the first person to say this, but um, I think it wasn't so much that Garland was, was uh, not appointed that upsets me. It's that the process was not uh, didn't proceed in an equitable and fair way and that that to me is the is the problem not so much that he wasn't confirmed and you know just sticking with that theme for a second uh you, you know mitch mcconnell in a lot of ways did not do that the right way because i mean if you think about the logic of it all he uh blocked the nomination at a time when it really didn't look like trump had any chance to win so he was probably blocking a more moderate uh, appointee than he was probably going to get from Clinton if Clinton had won. Um, and it was very unlikely that he was going to prevail. Now, he ended up prevailing, and so he ends up smelling like a rose out of all that. But that wasn't necessarily the smart move, right? Right. You're right. And I mean, in hindsight, he looks brilliant. But at the time... You're absolutely right. It was very likely that Clinton would have picked someone not just more liberal than Garland, who was a center-left justice, certainly a liberal justice, but not very liberal, more of a centrist than many other potential nominees. Uh, so it's very likely that had Hillary Clinton prevailed, which was the conventional wisdom, she was going to pick someone more liberal. And more importantly, I think just as importantly, someone much younger. Because Garland was 62 years old. And if you look at modern nominees, that's pretty old. Most nominees tend to be in their 40s, like uh, Justice Barrett, or, or, you know, in their early to mid-50s, which means that they're likely to serve 25, 30, 35 years. It was very unlikely for Garland to really serve much more than 20 years. Uh, so I think McConnell really, you know, rolled the dice, to use a cliche, and it worked out for him. But you're right. Had uh, Clinton won the election, it could have really backfired because you would have had someone more liberal and someone younger uh, take that spot. But I want to get a little bit to your book because um, it's, it's really interesting. I came about your book uh, almost by accident. Um, so last year I had read uh, Robert Caro's series on LBJ, and I had mm -hmm. also, um, by happenstance, uh, read Anthony Lewis's book on, uh, on the Gideon versus Wainwright uh, case. Yeah. And, and so I started looking around for a book on Abe Fortas, and I found one bio, which was in uh, print only, and I've mo mostly been reading, you know, e-books at this point. And so I was right. looking for an e-book on Fortas, and there really aren't many, and then I stumbled on yours, and yours uh, looked very interesting. And by the time I got around to read it, it happened to be <laughs> this week uh, when it was very appropriate. Um Right. I, you know, it's really interesting. Like, I, I feel like Abe Fortas um, is kind of a forgotten, pivotal figure in, in modern American history. Um, and, and there's kind of three points in time uh, when, when he plays really a crucial role. And the first one is 1948, after um, LBJ is... Uh, in a very close fight and um, probably wouldn't have won the Senate race were it not for Abe Fortas's legal maneuvering, um, which right. is chronicled really nicely in Caro's book. 
And then, of course, you have uh, Gideon's trumpet, and you could argue that, uh, you know, uh, Gideon's probably going to win in that court anyway, but that's still a crucial case, and, and he played a pretty defining role in it. And then finally, uh, 1968, uh, you have kind of the centerpiece of your book, uh, which turns into an interesting uh, battle. Uh, so you want to lay out a little bit of this? Sure. First, first, let me say I'm glad you found my book when you did. You know, sometimes serendipity uh, works out that way. So, uh, you know, it, even though 2020 has been a tough year, some, at least in small ways, the stars have aligned a little bit. So uh, let me let me say that to start. Uh, so heading into 68, uh, Abe Fortas was very close to LBJ. He was his close friend, personal advisor, lawyer, and a political advisor as well. Uh, in 1965, LBJ appoints him to become a justice, an associate justice, and he's confirmed within about two weeks after three hours of hearings and through a procedure that no one has used uh, since 1965, that was the last time, through a voice vote, where the Senate simply says, says all in favor, say aye, all against, say no, um, you know, real casual process almost by modern day standards. So. He's confirmed very quickly and easily in 1965. Then you get to 1968, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice, the legendary Chief Justice, this liberal titan of the court, uh, decides to retire, and we can get into his decision-making later, but he decides to retire, and LBJ wants to put Fortas, promote him from Associate Justice to Chief Justice, and that's not an automatic promotion. You still have to get confirmed by the Senate uh, if you rejected, you would stay in associate justice, but you still have to get confirmed to move up to chief justice. And everyone at the time thought it would be a shoo-in. Uh, you know, you see editorials from the day kind of presuming that he's going to be the new justice. If you look in the archives, you get all these letters congratulating him because uh, everyone's under the assumption that he's going to be uh, confirmed. And even when I spoke to um, a couple of the judicial clerks who were clerking on the Supreme Court at the time, they said, yes, he started to take up some of the administrative duties that the chief justice's office does. Uh, so everyone was under this presumption that he would easily prevail, and it didn't turn out that way, and we can get into those details, but it was really monumental because, to me, that set the template for the modern confirmation battles that we have and the politicization of the confirmation process that we now see on a regular basis, uh, but it really began in 1968, kind of... Um, you know, con continued during the Nixon years and then kind of went dormant uh, until we see uh, in Bork in 1987. And now in the last uh, three, four years, we've seen it's really uh, there all the time. It's omnipresent. But 68 is the template for many of the tactics that we've seen in recent years, as well as the attitude. It's kind of winner take all, no matter what the norms, no matter what the traditions are, we're going to, uh, parties are willing to kind of break all types of norms and customs to win a discoveted seat on the court. And that really began in, in, the, in that year. And what's really interesting, uh, and I really appreciated about your book, you know, you, you go into kind of the machinations of LBJ. And, you know, to me, one of the biggest mistakes he ever made was maneuvering Arthur Goldberg off the court um, in what, 1965, um, yeah. to, to get Fortis on, uh, Ar Arthur Goldberg was, um, 
you know, a very reliable liberal vote. He was fairly young. He, he lived another 25 years. Um, right. And, uh, and, and you end up uh, with Fortis, and there's nothing wrong with Fortis from a liberal's perspective, but he had some skeletons in his closet that ended up being exploited, uh, whereas Goldberg would have been solid. And Goldberg, uh, as I understand it, regretted the move uh, pretty much for the rest of his life. Yes. So just to give some background, Goldberg was uh, confirmed um, in 1962. He was a JFK um, uh, appointment, and he had been Labor Secretary. So this is only three years later. And he was confirmed in September of 62, and he leaves the court in, uh, in I think, about July of 65, mostly through LBJ's machinations. Like you said, he, he told Goldberg, oh, you'll be my second Secretary of State. I'm going to make you the ambassador. Uh, to the UN, which he did, uh, but he made Goldberg believe that he would have this huge say in foreign policy and that he would be in charge of uh, the U.S. policy in Vietnam. And none of that turned out to be true. It was all uh, LBJ kind of duping Goldberg into resigning. Uh, but I think it goes to LBJ's personality. You know, he really thought he was this masterful puppeteer. And in many ways he was, right? I mean, he got a sitting justice to resign only three years into his term. He was a masterful manipulator, uh, and he passed, you know, the Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Act, all that uh, great society legislation. So he really was a masterful politician, but sometimes he went too far, and in this case, in the long run, it definitely uh, backfired. And he kind of did a similar thing, uh, although it didn't backfire uh, the same way, but uh, a couple of years later, Tom Park was a sitting justice, and LBJ wanted to kind of have him resign so that he could put Thurgood Marshall in his place. And so he appointed Tom Clark's son, Randy Clark, to become the attorney general. And uh, the justice felt like that could be a conflict of interest because so many of the cases before the court involved the U.S. government. Um, so Thurgood Marshall went in his place. Now, that didn't backfire uh, in terms of Marshall ended up being the kind of justice that LBJ would have wanted. But it still goes to show like how he thought of the court as just a sort of another political arena just like the legislative arena and the, and the West Wing, where he could really manipulate people and get his way. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes it backfired, sometimes it didn't work out his way. And I think with Fortis, it really did backfire. And he goes on to say at one point that, you know, he kind of ruined Fortis's life because Fortis, ironically, didn't want the job. He was a very successful uh, private practice lawyer uh, with one of the biggest law firms in America. And he liked playing this uh, behind-the-scenes role. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't really want to be on the Supreme Court, and LBJ forced him into it. So ironically, it not only backfired for Democrats and liberals to get rid of Goldberg and put Fortas in his place, but it also contributed to uh, Fortas's ruination and the ruining of his professional life. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting how you describe LBJ because really Nixon ended up being the same way, and um, we'll get into that in a little bit here. Um, but, you know, um, and, and maybe this is my perception on, on things, but it seems like, you know, really since 1968, the Democrats have been on the short end of the stick of most of this uh, judicial maneuvering. Is that my impression or am I on the right track on this? No, you're I think you're definitely on the right track. And, and part of it is because they've lost a couple of close elections. 1968 being one of them, um, 2016 being another, 
where a large number of vacancies happen to open up immediately after a very close uh, hard-fought election. Um, so if you look in 68, Nixon is, uh, wins the election, again, very close against Hubert Humphrey, and he ends up nominating, appointing four justices in his first term. And then if you look at you know, 2016, Trump loses the popular vote, wins the electoral college, uh, again, very close election, and he nominates uh, three people to the court. So if you just take those two races alone, that's a seven-person swing, right? Seven justices. Yeah, for don't DOC. forget about 2000. Yes, there's another close election. I'm, I'm, that one actually, probably the stakes weren't as big because uh, George Bush ended up uh, appointing two justices and neither were in his first term. So I agree with you there. That There's another one. But I think that one is like, it's a longer period of time and it's fewer justices. True. This one with Trump, it's four years, three justices with Nixon. It's four years, four justices. Uh, so they're even, you know, and, and you're right. You could throw in the Bush one too. So there's another two. So that's nine potential nomin- uh, appointments that could have, and some would argue should have been made by Democratic president, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, and then you throw in the Garland on top of it where, you know, Barrett is pushed through very quickly, so close to an election. And Garland, who you figure, well, if he was treated the same way, he would have been confirmed, um, and he wasn't. So now there's there's your tenth. So there there's theoretically ten uh, appointments to the court since 1968 that could have gone the other way. That's a huge number because there's very little turnover over the uh, in the court in that time. I think there've only been 19 or 20 justices since Fortas's time. So about half of them really could have gone the other way, and that. And that's the short end of the stick that Democrats have uh, endured over these years. Now, if we look at Nixon, uh, and this is fascinating. I mean, Nixon's almost as bad as LBJ in terms of being his own worst enemy. I I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the actual trade-off, yeah, he pushes the court a little bit to the right, uh, clearly, but not as far as you might have expected, given that he got four. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. You had a question at the end of that. Well, um, you know, I, I mean, let's start with him pushing Fortis off the court. Um, yeah, he gets Fortis off the court, but he bungles the two Southern uh, appointments, and he ends up with Blackman. Blackman's not quite Fortis, but by the end of his career, he doesn't look that different than Fortis. Right. That's right. So. So here's, here's how the two were the same. Here's how they differed. Um, prior to LBJ, presidents didn't think that much about their Supreme Court appointments. It wasn't something that they focused on during their campaign. Um, they didn't put the potential nominees under a lot of scrutiny. If you go back and look at Harry Truman, he appointed four justices. They were all centrist, and some of them were more conservative than liberal. I mean, they did not reflect what became of the Democratic Party at all. Uh, And they were all mediocrities. None of them were stellar legal minds or anything like that. Uh, Then you look at Eisenhower in the 50s. He appoints five justices. You figure he would have such an impact on the future of the court. uh, But one of them resigns very quickly. Two of them are reliable conservatives. But the other two become Earl Warren and William Brennan, who are the liberal titans of the court. So they completely backfired. And Eisenhower regretted those decisions. And JFK as well. He picked Arthur Goldberg, but he also picked Byron White, who, again, is a centrist, slightly to the right, slightly to the left, depending on an issue, but certainly not 
uh, a liberal stalwart. So LBJ was sort of the first president to really hone in on uh, the ideology of the, his nominees. He wanted liberals to maintain the Warren Court's liberal jurisprudence. He wanted them to shield his legislative achievements from constitutional scrutiny. So that was something he fixated on in a way that JFK, Eisenhower, Truman, and their predecessors really never had. If you look at Nixon, he also fixated on the court, but in a slightly different way. He looked more for how can he use the nomination process to help his electoral process? So yes, he wanted to pick conservatives, but part of the reason why he wasn't as good at it as you had suggested, right? He picked Blackman, who ended up being, by the end of his career, was maybe the most liberal person on the court. Um, and uh, so, and Warren Berger, you know, was conservative, but wasn't very conservative. Only Rehnquist, William Rehnquist, is really an arch conservative of his four picks. Two of the other three, Lewis Powell and Berger, are somewhat conservative, and Blackman ends up liberal. Uh, and part of that is because Nixon focused a lot more on what is this going to do for me politically? And you've mentioned the Southern jurist. So his whole strategy in 1968 was he had seen what the civil rights issue was doing in the South, which had been this democratic uh, bedrock since the Civil War. And because of the civil rights bills and Brown v. Board and, and the Democratic Party being pro-civil rights, the fortunes were changing for the GOP in the South. It was now possible to potentially win the South. So in 1968, Nixon goes full steam ahead with what was called his Southern strategy and tried to lure the South away from the Democrats to the Republican camp. And it worked to a good extent, uh, but he really wanted to cement that Southern strategy during his first term. And the main way he did it, he did it in small ways, but the two big ways he did it was when he pushed Fortas off the court, he nominated two Southern judges. They were both rejected by the Senate, but they reaffirmed his status to the South as their champion. And, and if you look at the archives, there's a lot of uh, memos written by uh, Southern Republican political strategists that basically say this cemented Nixon in the South. He's their guy. And if you look at the 72 election, it paid total dividends for him. He, had, he does a clean sweep of the South something that no Republican had ever done or had ever even come close. So, so that's the difference. He was willing to give up a little bit on ideology and picking a justice who's going to be a reliable conservative and someone who's also, you know, really like a brilliant liberal, uh, brilliant legal mind. But in its place, he wanted someone who will help his electoral fortune. So if you kind of look at both LBJ and Nixon, what they were doing, the two together embody what is happening now, right? When we look at Donald Trump, he is picking nominees who will help his electoral prospects, right? The fact that he had a list of potential nominees before each of the two elections, uh, the fact that his supporters love his picks shows you that he looks at the nomination process as a way to build political support. At the same time, so that's, that's what he's learned from Nixon in a way. And what he's learned from LBJ is pick these perfect ideologues who've been vetted for years by conservative groups so that they are very reliable, so that you don't get what happened to Eisenhower. You don't even get what happened to some extent to Nixon with Blackman, someone not kind of following the, the ideological path that he would expect for them. So, so he's kind of combined those two elements that LBJ and Nixon introduced into the mindset that presidents uh, had about uh, Supreme Court nominations. And, and now we're seeing it like I said, fully embodied under Trump and really taken to new heights because he's had 40, 50 years, not just him, but his advisors 
have had 40, 50 years of test cases along the way to see like what is the best way of picking a justice who's going to maximize your political, uh, from a political valuation standpoint, and at the same time, maximize their ideological viewpoint that you want the court to uh, press in the future. So, so now we're seeing all of that put together. Yeah, and and there was some interesting stuff. I mean, I was reading up on Berger, and Berger was not only, you know, kind of, you know, he was conservative, but he was very ineffectual as a uh, chief justice. In fact, uh, you know, you could argue that during the 70s, uh, Brennan was closer to being the chief justice than uh, than Berger was, and, and Brennan ends up pulling over Powell and, and often negating uh, the conservative advantage during that time because Berger was so inept and Berger ends up alienating black men even. Yes. Yeah, Ber- Berger um, was not a very effective chief justice, as you said, because he, he really did have a majority of the court ideologically for almost his entire tenure, but wasn't able to really have um, a sweeping rulings and really shift the court to the right. It did to some extent but not the way people expected. He was not Earl Warren. Earl Warren was uh, very much a leader and very much knew how to get not just liberals on his side, but the moderates, the centrists on his side. Uh, Berger wasn't good at that. And, and he often turned people off for a lot of things driven by personality rather than ideology. Uh, you know, he just, he just was not very good at being the head of a court. He may have been better as an associate justice rather than someone who's leading the, the institution. And so... He wasn't as effective, but I would argue, again, people learn from that. And so when R- Ronald Reagan picks William Rehnquist um, in uh, 1986, and then uh, George Bush picks John Roberts, right, they are looking to, oh, we don't want another burger. We don't want someone who's not going to be able to, to lead their side to victory. Um, so, again, they have learned from the mistakes of the past that LBJ and Nixon made in a way. And improved upon, depending on your point of view, but from their point of view, improved upon those picks uh, to a great extent. So bringing it to to now, um, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there was an interesting section in the New York Times editorial pages uh, where uh, they had Emily Bazelon and a bunch of uh, top scholars talking about what the Democrats could do to change the court. Um, right. And yes, they throw, I see that, yes. Yeah, they throw out all sorts of ideas. But, you know, back to your book, your book suggests that those ideas are bound to fail, right? Well, I think in terms of having term limits um, or not having lifetime tenure, you know, you'd have to amend the Constitution, which you can imagine is a really hard uh, hurdle to overcome. Um, and you can, quote-unquote, pack the court, which basically means increase the size of the court, the number of justices, and that's something that can be done just through congressional legislation. Uh, But imagine this scenario. So let's say Joseph Biden wins, Democrats capture the Senate, and they continue to hold the House. So they have a complete uh, majority in Congress, uh, and they have the presidency, right? So they say, okay, we're going to add three more justices, which whom Biden will get to fill those positions, or six more, right? And we're not we're gonna recreate a liberal majority on the court. And maybe in the short term that works, it's certainly going to, I think, could be 
seen as very unappealing to people that, hey, you guys just, just you're doing even more you're doing things that are even more foolhardy than what, you know, Trump and the Republicans did by pushing through Barrett, right? You're really messing with this institution. Uh, but the long-term goal uh, problem also is what happens when the Republicans, and one day they will, retake Congress and retake the presidency? Are they going to add another three justices? Are we going to get 18, 21, 24, you know, 25? It's got to be an odd number. But 15, you know, 19, 25, whatever it is, justices, uh, and then the court is kind of going to really seem unseemly and even more politicized and partisan than it is now. Um, so I think a lot of the solutions that are offered out there are either unrealistic because they're not you need a constitutional amendment or they're unworkable. Uh, what I wish would happen is, in a way, if if Barrett had been rejected and Garland was already rejected, and the two sides kind of said, you know what? we reached a point where we're just being so punitive towards each other. Let's come to some kind of truce. Let's come to an understanding that a president will confer with the other side and try to pick someone, a Republican president should be allowed to pick a conservative, but not necessarily a very conservative person. A Democratic president should be allowed to pick a liberal, but not a very liberal person. And you know you can move to more of a centrist position where the judges are center right or center left, depending on the president, but they're not on the extremes of their um, ideologies. Um, and and you kind of wonder, you know, just as like there's a truce in wars, right? Because both sides have taken on so much uh, punishment and have had so many casualties that they eventually lead to that conclusion. I am wondering if that might be the only way out, as ugly as that sounds. I do wonder if that's the only way out because I think a lot of these other solutions are ju they're just not realistic or workable. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and and you laid out the practical problem of court packing is that it's going to become an escalating uh, factor. Um, also point out that, hey, uh, Roosevelt, during the height of his power and popularity, couldn't make it work. Why is right. Biden, uh, who's probably going to be considerably weaker uh, going to be able to do it. That's right. I mean, and Roosevelt didn't really have a minority party. Uh, I believe Democrats in the 1930s had uh, a two-thirds majority in they the did. Senate. They had overwhelming majorities. So, so if he couldn't pull it through when he was at the top of his game, you know, the 36th election is his biggest victory, uh, and then he tries to pack the court just a couple of months later after that election, and he's got the supermajority in Congress, you're right. Um, uh, uh, maybe the most popular president of the 20th century at the height of his power with a supermajority in Congress, and he wasn't able to do it. It seems like Biden's going to have a very uphill battle. And if he does do it, it's going to be on purely partisan basis. It's going to be dogged by uh, questions of uh, legitimacy, right? And in a way, Democrats are saying, you know what, who cares? Maybe we're going to be called illegitimate, but look what the Republicans did with Garland and Barrett. That was also illegitimate. Um, so it could work. But like I said, then what happens four years from now or eight years from now when the Republicans are in power? Are they going to add three more or five more? Are we going to have 25 justices 10 years from now? And that, and that, and that's a mess. And then what do their rulings mean? Like how, how much credibility will a court have simply because their new justices added to it? You know, that's something that, um, the court is very cognizant of 
they don't like overruling themselves unless um, they have a very good reason. And it's not required. You can overrule a president with a 5-4 majority. But in the justices' eyes, they would like to have much bigger majorities because they, they don't like it when there's an appearance that, oh, the only reason you ruled a certain way is because you've got five Republicans and four Democrats or, you know, six liberals and three uh, Republicans on the court. They like to say no, regardless of who's here, regardless of the nine people who are the justices, we would have ruled this way anyway. Uh, and that gets harder to do as you, as you just keep adding new justices and they keep flipping on uh, key precedent. Then we're like, well, they're just an elected body, but without election. So what are we doing here? Why, why do we even have the court and why do we empower it the way we do if they're simply going to reflect the latest electoral um, uh, uh, victories or defeats in the in the in the latest election. So so there's a real trouble to court packing the way uh, if it if it plays out. And I do think you know John Roberts plays a little bit into that because you know the one thing you can say about him is he's very cognizant of uh, the role of the court and the institution, and I think he's going to try at least to be a break on on, on some of it. Um, but yes, um, you know, a absolutely, yes. The interesting thing, and again, it might be my own lens here, but uh, it seems like you know some of these ideas thrown out are things that Republicans can pull off that Democrats can't, and I don't know why that <laughs> is, but you know, it just seems like Democrats every time they try to do something, they they just fall on and shoot each other. Right. I have, I have a theory, which I have not heard, and uh, but. Part of it is when I studied a lot of the you know, 60s and 50s, a lot of my book, it's about the Supreme Court, but it's really about the political battles surrounding the court. So a lot of my book takes place in the president, in the White House, and in the Senate, right? Um, and I look at Democrats then, they had immense political mobilization, which they lack now. And if you look at um, both the battles involving the Supreme Court throughout the 50s and 60s, as well as the Great Society legislation, the Civil Rights Bills, the Voting Rights Act, et cetera, they had a group which was called the, um, the, the Rights Coalition that had the NAACP and the AFL-CIO, the union, were, were leading it, and they had dozens of unions and civil rights groups and religious groups within this coalition. And they were a potent force of political mobilization. And, and here's how. So, the head of the NAACP lobbying, a man named uh, uh, Mitchell, he was known as the 101st senator. That's how powerful he was uh, within the Senate, within Congress. You can't say that about any civil rights group now. The AFL-CIO, if you look at the amount of money they spent lobbying, take a look, take a look at any one year, like 1965, uh, seven of the top 10 or five of the top 10, some big number like that, five, six, seven of the top 10 groups uh, spending on lobbying are the different uh, units of the AFL-CIO. They have like their, their steel workers, their truck drivers, you know, all the different smaller unions within the AFL-CIO. So those groups and those that coalition had immense power. And if a senator defied that, right, they could say, you know what, all these union people are going to vote against you or all these African-American voters are going to vote against you. Um, and they just can't do that now. They don't have sway over 
and they had sway at the time over Democrats and Republicans. They don't have sway over Republicans anymore. Uh, and partly that's because Republicans are largely vote, uh, elected from areas where there's almost no competition from Democrats. Uh, but I think that's part of the reason why these legislative battles, uh, Democrats aren't winning them. They don't have the political mobilization that they did in their glory days in the post-World War II era. And, and that coalition broke down in the early 70s, and it's never been reformulated, even in a new way. There's no political coalition among Democrats that has this like legislative uh, sledgehammer uh, at its disposal. And, and I think that's part of the reason why, as you said, they're not able to pull these things off the way Republicans are. Very interesting. Um, and, and, you know, one of the proposals that I looked at actually looked kind of interesting. Um, the idea was um, setting 18-year term limits, uh, some kind of grand grandfathering them in, uh, and then uh, allowing presidents to, uh, on a rotating basis, fill uh, exactly two uh, spots each term. So if you won one term, you'd fill two spots. You win two terms, you fill four spots. And that would, in a lot of ways, tie this to uh, the electoral success. Um, it would make it much more majoritarian uh, institution than it's been. But it would also eliminate a lot of this maneuvering. Um, now, yeah. obviously, that would require a constitutional amendment. But maybe that's something that the Republicans would, would be agreeable to because it creates a level of fairness and expectation that just kind of levels the playing field. Yes, I agree. I think, I think that's one of the more workable solutions. Again, assuming you can overcome the overwhelming hurdle of passing a constitutional amendment. Um, but anything that reduces the stakes of these nominations will be helpful. And, and that does it in two ways. One, you know every president is going to get two nominees, right? So that reduces the stakes uh, in that way. And two, you know the justice is only going to serve 18 years, not 35 years, right? 30, 35 years like many of the justices do now. So you reduce the stakes of what's going to get involved that way too. So I think that's, a, that's one of the better solutions I've heard. But again, passing a constitutional amendment in America when we can't agree on basic things like public health and how to deal with a pandemic is going to be really, really hard. Um, I would say one other thing that would help depoliticize the court is if Congress did its job. And by that, I mean so many of the rulings, so many of the cases that the court sees involve uh, statutory interpretation and dealing with regulation. Uh, so the constitutional issues, like a gay marriage issue, that Congress pretty much can't do anything about. But most of these other issues, like this year we had uh, the LGBTQ case, whether it, whether uh, people who, who were gay or who were transgender, whether they were protected by um, uh, a civil rights act passed in the 1960s. If Congress did its job and it updated our laws on a regular basis, those cases wouldn't end up in the court because they're, they're based on statutory law they would, they would, Congress would be able to handle it. Same thing with a lot of the regulations. The EPA uh, is using the Clean Air Act passed in the early 1970s to deal with global warming, which was on no one's horizon 50 years ago, right? So it contorts itself to try to do things that meet its statutory authority, but to deal with modern day problems. So anytime it does that, 
whatever industry is affected, whether it's the coal industry, oil industry, they'll sue and they'll say, hey, the EPA is going beyond its statutory authority. It'll go to the Supreme Court. Sometimes the court has ruled in favor of the EPA. Sometimes it's ruled against it. But again, it shouldn't really have to. If Congress did its job and updated its laws on a regular basis, which is its basic job, right, to legislate, um, we, we would get rid of, I would say, 50%, if not more, of what we consider controversial issues would be removed off the court's docket. And then what would remain for the court are the truly constitutional issues. Uh, and that, you know, we just have to live with. But imagine 50% less of these controversial cases showing up in front of the court simply because Congress is doing what it's supposed to do and passing laws, updating laws, which is that it has been atrocious at doing the last 10 to 20 years. So I just want to... Uh mention one other uh, interesting aspect of the book. Now, I was in high school in the 80s when Bork was uh, nominated, so I actually remember that process. And I right. remember at that time, everybody was acting like, you know, uh, you know, they created the verb Borked, and, uh, you know, they were acting like this was unusual and different and kind of the deviant uh, new, uh, new norm. <laughs> And right. your book really, you know, makes it clear that no, uh, Fortis was, and in fact, there was another uh, fight with uh, Nixon's appointees uh, from Fortis in 1970 uh, that was just as contentious as the Bork hearing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 you can even see many of the same players involved in. Fortis's uh, rejection, and, and we haven't mentioned it, but he was the first justice to be the target of a filibuster, the first nominee. Uh, so there were all these unprecedented tactics used against him in 68, and by the time you get to Bork in 87, I think partly because the Fortis hearings weren't um, televised, and partly because 1968, like 2020, was such a crazy year, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um but now you, you, the conventional wisdom is that, no, no, it was the Bork nomination in 87 that rewrote the rules on the confirmation process, and it, it's wrong. It's wrong. And if you look at the, just the players involved, so Strom Thurmond, uh, the senator, led the movement against Fortis in 68. Ironically, he is the primary uh, defender of Bork in 1987. Howard Baker, who was also – a senator in 68 who worked with Thurman closely to run that filibuster. He is Ronald Reagan's chief of staff in, uh, in 1987. So he's trying to push through the Bork nomination. And then a lot of the people who were on the Senate Judiciary Committee in 68 are still there in 87. So a lot of their roles are reversed. And there's some great quotes within the Senate debates where they say, hey, Strong Thurman is accusing us of breaking norms, by ruining customs, by shattering traditions and attacking Robert Bork. But he did all of that and much more against Fortis back in 1968. So, so they really bring that out. And it was they definitely remembered, even though we have largely forgotten, they definitely remembered what the Fortis nomination was like. And one, uh, I remember one quote in particular is by Joseph Califano, who was LBJ's uh, domestic advisor. And he, he was intimately involved in the Fortis nomination. Uh, and you, you see him all over the, the archives uh, in that he was, he was directly involved. But in 87, during Bork, he wrote an editorial in the New York Times, and he said, look, people opposed Fortis, and they were willing to use the filibuster, which had never been done, uh, against him. And he goes, if people opposed Bork, they should do the same. 
So he was basically saying, you know what? You did this nasty thing to Fortis. It's okay if we repeat that against Bork. So absolutely, that's why I argue that it was the Fortis nomination that established the template of the modern judicial wars and the, you know, the politicized confirmation process. Uh, but it's largely been forgotten and it's been displaced by Bork, but uh, it really it go, does go back to Fortis in 68, even to the point, like I said, where it's the same people involved in both. And it's certainly on their minds uh, what happened, you know, 20, almost 20 years before Bork. And what's really funny, you know, you're, you're talking about Strom Thurmond, you know, he was not a young guy in the 1960s, <laughs> and, and yet he he somehow manages to stick on for another 35 years. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an interesting aside, and and one of the things I actually appreciated about your book is that when you mentioned uh, the these actors and players that would pop up later in history, you would always reference that, which a lot of books don't do, and it. it you know, sometimes, I mean, in this case, most of the people I was kind of familiar with, but sometimes you're like, oh, is that the same guy? And you have to kind of look it up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, um, you know, and, and one of the little uh, asides and anecdotes uh, was um, at one point, uh, Nixon was uh, contemplating, I don't know how seriously, uh, nominating Robert Byrd as almost an F you uh, to, the, to the Democrats, that one would have blown up on him too because he became a liberal uh, late in life. Yes, yes. Well, well, Nixon, as I said, he primarily looked at nominees as political pawns. What is it going to do for his electoral prospects? And that's why he was so obsessed with uh, appointing a Southern judge. Uh, and, and sometimes with the Byrd one, it was more like, how can I screw over the Democrats? How can I, uh, you know, attack the media, which he felt, you know, hated him. Uh, so he would make these, and I don't think he, he thought about Bird as a serious nomination, but the fact that they even went down the road of really considering it to some extent and, and doing the background checks and having the American Bar Association, you know, assess his uh, qualifications, you know, it was somewhat serious. I don't think it was very serious, but it was somewhat serious. But But that's how Nixon was, and if you... You know, because we have his tapes, you don't only get with most presidential libraries, you get the memos and letters. And, but there's a lot that people don't write down. Uh, but in Nixon, because you also have the, the tapes, you get a lot of amazing stuff about how he thought. And he really, in many ways, thought in these ways where he was so uh, he was very petty. And he often saw um, almost everything in the in the light of a political battle. Uh, so he wasn't too worried like, oh, how, what is this going to do to my uh, legacy or something like that? He, he, he was somewhat concerned about it, but he, he fixated a lot, a lot on what's going to be the political uh, consequence of a potential nominee. And that's why he even considered someone like Byrd, who, who, who also was unqualified to be on the court uh, because you know, he hardly had any legal experience. He just would not have been uh, a very good justice from, from a purely qualification standpoint. Uh, but Nixon, you know, he didn't care. He was like, oh, how can I how can I make them vote against their their own senator or how can I upset the media and, you know, flip the flip the narrative on them? So that's just, you know, again, peculiar to his personality. Uh, but that's just the way he operated. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and having this great discussion with me. Uh, I find this stuff fascinating, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the books uh, connect uh, really well to what's happening in the world, and this just kind of worked for me.
Thank you, David. It was my pleasure. All right. That was Michael Bobelian. He's the author of Marble Palace, uh, which uh, goes into great detail in the court battle over uh, Abe Fortas's nomination in 1968, but it also goes into the history really well uh, of that period. Um, excellent book. I, I strongly recommend anyone buying it. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.